0: Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 10, Episode 17, To Osaka and Beyond In the previous episode, I gave you the traditional account of the epic battle of Sekigahara. If you were to visit the Sekigahara Memorial Park today, you would read a description of the battle which is very similar, if not identical, to my own rendition. However, in recent years, some historians have begun to question how much of our understanding of that battle is based on later elaborations, and whether the actual real struggle at Sekigahara was more anticlimactic and far less cinematic. The result of the battle is not in question. Tokugawa Ieyasu's eastern army won the engagement, and that victory propelled him to the heights we will discuss later in this episode. It's also generally agreed that Ishida Mitsunari was trying to arrange a battle in Mikawa, and that Ieyasu's foreknowledge of Mitsunari's arrangement with Uesugi Kagekatsu was the reason that they had their showdown in Mino province instead. But a clash of two huge armies totaling more than 200,000 troops collectively, which lasted several hours, cost more than 30,000 lives, and featured dramatic mid-battle betrayals, is almost certainly not representative of the actual sequence of events. The sources which describe the Battle of Sekigahara, which are closest to the event itself, tell a far more simple and less exciting story. Even by the traditional account, most of the daimyo involved on the losing side survived. The fate of the unfortunate Otani Yoshitsugu who committed seppuku on the battlefield seems to have been an exception rather than a rule. As for Kobayakawa Hideaki's eventual betrayal, many historians believed that he joined forces with the Tokugawa near the battle's beginning and that rather than lasting six hours, the entire affair may have been resolved before noon. One of the earliest accounts claims that a mere several hundred heads were taken, not the 30,000 later attested by future chroniclers. The inevitable question is, why would the chronicles of later years assert such fabrications? I think the potential answer is multifaceted. Strict adherence to facts and provable claims have never been characteristic of Japanese chronicles. They are hardly alone in this regard, as people will still repeat the claim that the Persian army that fought against the Spartans and their allies at Thermopylae was a million strong—a figure that is grossly exaggerated given the difficulties of supply which such a massive force would present at the time. Like the chroniclers of the ancient Mediterranean, Japanese historians of the past were known to juke the stats. The other factor at play here is narrative flow. Toyotomi Hideyoshi was the most powerful man in the entire nation, so surely it must have been a great struggle for Tokugawa Ieyasu to replace him as the leading man and usurp the authority which the taiko had so deliberately passed down to his son. The daimyo who dared to oppose Tokugawa suzerainty surely must have fought tooth and nail to resist his eventual domination." The reality of Sekigahara may have been far less dramatic than the traditional accounts would have us believe. In a 2017 Japanese film called Sekigahara, the battle is recounted with all of its later traditional baggage, even including an almost certainly apocryphal story that Ishida Mitsunari, a child at the time, met Toyotomi Hideyoshi at a temple and brought him cups of tea. The film also includes Korean cannoneers supporting the Western army and at the film's conclusion, setting a giant powder magazine alight in a great explosion that took with it all of the Last Stand Western Army partisans. The film is based on a 1966 novel by Shiba Ryotaro, which unfortunately does not appear to have been translated into English yet. While the film is something of an over-the-top sensationalist gore fest, there are quite a few aspects that I appreciated for their historical accuracy. The ninja characters featured in Sekigahara dress as common people and never don the infamous Shinobi Shōzoku. Both Western and Eastern armies have Onnabugeisha, women warriors, fighting in their ranks, and the battlefield fighting actually features grappling and much more realistic versions of samurai warfare, even if it was, again, overdramatized. Another feature of the entire lead up to Sekigahara, which may have been overstated, were Ishida Mitsunari's many plots against Tokugawa Ieyasu. If Mitsunari was really trying to have Ieyasu killed, then that certainly justified Ieyasu in bringing an army against him later, even if Mitsunari did try to cast himself as a protector of Hideyoshi's heir. The stories of these plots also seem to have come along much later and in 20 years' time, we very well might see a rightful revision of Sekigahara which, even if stripped of its drama and bloodshed, was still a critical battle in Japanese history. Whatever the truth of the battle, Ishida Mitsunari and his western army lost, and Tokugawa Ieyasu's eastern army had won. The individual daimyo who composed the coalition of the western army returned to their own lands, and Mitsunari himself went into hiding. About a week after the battle, he was discovered, and other ringleaders of the defunct western army were also rounded up. In the meantime, Tokugawa Ieyasu marched on with his army, first visiting the capital, and then coming to Osaka, where Mori Terumoto and Toyotomi Hideyori awaited. Mori Terumoto's refusal to lead the western army personally, as well as his vassal Kikawa Hiroie's refusal to heed orders of Ishida Mitsunari, have led some to suspect that he may have worked out a prior arrangement with Ieyasu and thus purposely sabotaged the efforts of his own coalition. While this is certainly a possibility, I think it is unlikely. Terumoto surrendered to Ieyasu's forces when they arrived at Osaka and Ieyasu took custody of young Hideyori. If the Mori really had worked to betray the Western army, They received a raw deal in return for their treachery. Their lands were reduced to the Choshu domain, which is contained within the boundaries of Nagato province on the very westernmost tip of Honshu. This was considered especially offensive to the Mori leaders as it uprooted them from their home province of Aki in south-central Chugoku. Their formerly vast holdings produced 1.2 million koku per year, while the Choshu domain would eventually peak at a mere 369,000 koku per annum. Ieyas had effectively cut their available wealth by 75%. The other factions who had supported Ishida Mitsunari were punished similarly, some more than others. The domains of 90 families, most of them minor houses, were confiscated outright, and four of the larger domains were reduced in size, and thus value. This provided Ieyasu with more than 6.5 million koku worth of land to grant as rewards. The Uesugi who came to terms with Ieyasu soon after Sekigahara saw a punitive reduction in their domain, as did the Satake and Akita, whose lands were all reduced by more than half of their previous value. The Chosokabe domain, which was essentially all of Tosa province, was confiscated outright and given wholly to Yamauchi Kazutoyo, a daimyo who is getting his own special Patreon-exclusive bonus episode later this season. A few of the large daimyo who had joined with Ishida Mitsunari were spared the indignity of confiscation or reduction, most baffling among them being the Shimazu. One of the earliest supporters of Ishida Mitsunari, Shimazu Yoshihiro, held a large domain that spanned Satsuma, Osumi, and part of Hyuga province in southern Kyushu, which produced 605,000 koku annually. Precisely why Ieyasu declined confiscation or reduction for their domain is not known for certain, though it could be that he simply didn't want to mount another campaign in the likely event that the distant Shimazu resisted his attempts at discipline. In terms of their overall contribution to the Western Army at Sekigahara, their delay in actually deploying their troops against Ieyasu's forces may have earned them some goodwill. Ieyasu was also an admirer of the retired daimyo Shimazu Yoshihisa, whom he had hosted at Fushimi Castle. There was Ishida Mitsunari, obviously, but sharing the blame were his most trusted partisans, Konishi Yukinaga, and a daimyo named Ankokuji Ekei, a warrior monk who had served the Mori clan and was a staunch Toyotomi partisan. On November 6, 1600, all three men were beheaded by an executioner on the charge of being rebels. There are a few apocryphal anecdotes about Mitsunari and his execution, or lack thereof, which are worth relating here. Keep in mind these are completely false and were spread many years after his death. One of the most famous stories popularized by the most excellent manga Lone Wolf and Cub is that Mitsunari was offered a persimmon to eat just before his execution. He refused, saying that persimmons upset his stomach, though some versions have him saying that they irritate his throat. While it seems laughable that a man facing imminent execution would worry about short-term problems like digestive issues or throat irritation, this story is meant to illustrate that Mitsunari kept his samurai discipline even to the end, ensuring that his body was fit for service if his master needed him. The other story, far more outlandish, is that Tokugawa Ieyasu spared Mitsunari's life, hiding him with a trusted retainer. While it's a sweet idea and while I just might write it as a novel someday, there's no reason to believe it's remotely true. Those who had stood beside Ieyas at the Battle of Sekigahara were, in general, generously compensated. Increases ranged from 10,000 to 650,000 koku, with many rewards measured in six digits. Generally, those with pre-existing large holdings were given modest increases, while those who held smaller domains were greatly increased, with some now controlling twice the value of what they had held previously. Once more we see the brilliance of the Han system which Hideyoshi had established. Rewards were measured in their annual yield, and in the future the yields projected by regular surveys would determine a clan's tax obligation. In the wake of Sekigahara, Tokugawa Ieyasu still needed to tread carefully. Although he was, now, without question, the most powerful daimyo in all of Japan, his power derived primarily from his position as Hideyori's protector, guardian, and future advisor. Although the outcome at Sekigahara favored Tokugawa supremacy, many of the loyal daimyo who had fought to uphold Ieyasu had not done so out of a desire to help him usurp Hideyori, but rather because they believed he was more able to defend Hideyori's claim as Hideyoshi's heir than Ishida Mitsunari. These men included Kato Kiyomasa, Kuroda Nagamasa, and Fukushima Masanori. If he gave even the appearance of grabbing at power to which he was not entitled, there was a real risk that these daimyo might join with the very daimyo they had just defeated at Sekigahara against Tokugawa Ieyasu. The fact that so many enemies whom he had just faced still had largely intact armies is another clue that the casualties at Sekigahara were likely not as significant as later traditional histories claim. Hoping to avoid such chaotic infighting, Ieyasu left Osaka soon after Hideyori had been released by the Mori, and the process for punishment and reward set into motion. He returned to his headquarters at Edo, He spent his time renovating the defense works of Edo Castle itself, while also ordering construction of additional castles in the area to create a formidable defensive network. While he was the top daimyo in Japan at the moment, he seems to have wanted a fallback plan, in case things turned against him in the future. Hardening his own personal capital against a potential major incursion imbued him with a level of security which his rivals could not match for themselves. Before we move on to his return to Kansai in 1603 and subsequent political upgrade, we should briefly recount the arrival of the Dutch ship Leifde on Japan's eastern shores and the consequences that arose therefrom. Born in a region of southern England called Kent in 1564, William Adams was orphaned at 12 and taken in as an apprentice at a shipyard. For the next dozen years, he learned about all things naval, from navigation to shipbuilding to combat. He enlisted in the Royal Navy and was a subordinate of Sir Francis Drake. He saw action at the famous attempted incursion of the Spanish Armada in 1588 as the captain of a supply ship. The following year he was married to Mary Hinn, and they would have two children together, one son named John and a daughter rather dramatically named Deliverance. After the battle with the Spanish Armada, Adams made his living working for the Barbary Company, an official enterprise of several English nobles working under the aegis of Queen Elizabeth I. They primarily traded with Morocco and throughout northern Africa in the region then commonly known as the Barbary Coast. He later signed on with a conglomerate of merchants in Rotterdam as a pilot major, a navigator in charge of multiple ships, for a five-ship fleet that sailed from northern Holland and proceeded southward across the west coast of Africa. After some misadventures there, most of which resulted in very little profit, they made their way at last towards the real objective, the west coast of South America. William Adams guided them across the Atlantic Ocean and through the treacherous Strait of Magellan. The journey had not gone well up to this point, and it only got worse from here. Some of the ships had gotten separated due to unexpected winds, and over 200 of the remaining crews died in the frigid conditions of the Antarctic, where they were stuck without favorable wind for some months. When at last they were able to flee from the frozen southern seas, a storm separated the Hope and the Liefde from the remainder of the fleet, with William Adams aboard. The primary objective of the voyage was to trade their cargo for silver and return to the Netherlands. Because they had met with rotten luck with trading and raiding in South America, they opted to follow Plan B, which was to sail across the Pacific to Japan and exchange their goods for silver there before returning to port. The journey to Japan proved quite dangerous, and a seasonal typhoon damaged the ship Hope so severely that it sank with all hands lost. Adams was on board the Lifta, who had only nine crew members able to work the ship. In this desperate condition, with many of the remaining nine sick and bedridden, they arrived off the coast of Bungo province on the eastern side of Kyushu. They remained anchored some distance from the coast until their sick had recovered and were able to stand. When they made landfall at Bungo province in April of 1600, their reception left something to be desired. Some Jesuit priests who persisted in ministering to their flocks on Kyushu got wind of the landing and alerted authorities that it was certainly a pirate ship and that the crew should be quickly executed. While this might seem like an extreme reaction, the reasons behind the Jesuit freakout were entirely political. Both England and the Netherlands had separated from the Roman Catholic Church and become independent Protestant nations. Holland was especially contentious because the Dutch were in the midst of a conflict now known as the Eighty-Year War, in which they were attempting to throw off Spanish rule. Why did the Spanish rule Holland? That's for another podcast to cover. For our purposes, just know that the ongoing conflict between the Spanish overlords and their Dutch subjects was then in its 32nd year. The Protestant Reformation was absolutely part of this conflict and the Jesuits had a vested interest in restoring Spanish or Portuguese trade to Japan while freezing the English and Dutch out of the Far East. When the incident was reported to the Regency Council, Tokugawa Ieyasu ordered that the sailors be brought to Osaka and detained there until their status was clarified. During their imprisonment, William Adams was frequently sought out by Tokugawa Ieyasu, who interviewed him on a variety of subjects. He asked Adams about his religious beliefs, about his home nations, about whether said home nation was at war. When informed that England was at war with Spain and Portugal, I imagine Ieyas may have sensed opportunity. The Taiko had put a strain on Japan's diplomatic relationship with Spain and Portugal when he ordered the brutal public executions of the 26 martyrs of Nagasaki and declared Christianity illegal. Although the authorities on Kyushu had returned to their usual custom of turning a blind eye to Jesuit activities, Ieyasu's later actions indicate that he shared Hideyoshi's dislike of the interference of foreign nations and their tendency toward colonization. If trade could be established with another European power without the previous strings of religious conversion attached, however, then that would be a more favorable situation for Japan. Ieyasu was also greatly interested in Adams' experience in shipbuilding, and they discussed everything from politics to mathematics to navigation. Adams showed Ieyasu the route by which he had traveled to Japan on a world map, and although Ieyasu was a little dubious that such a journey could be undertaken, he nevertheless believed that he could employ William Adams in a productive enterprise which would help keep Japan secure in the future. The crew of the Lifta was ordered to bring the ship to Edo. Having suffered such calamities on its previous journeys and with some of its timbers beginning to succumb to rot, the Lifta successfully made the trip, but soon after sank in Edo Harbor. Nevertheless, the cargo was put into Tokugawa Ieyasu's custody, which included large quantities of English wool, glass beads, metal tools, firearms, bronze cannons, chain mail, and a sizable cache of cannonballs, which included chainshot. According to some Spanish sources, the cannons seized by Ieyas from the Lifta were later used at the Battle of Sekigahara, but as far as I could tell, no Japanese sources make any such mention of cannons at Sekigahara at all. Whatever the truth, William Adams never returned to England. We will discuss his further adventures next season, but for now, we will just note that Tokugawa Ieyas wanted Japan's navy to receive some upgrades and to establish more equal trade relations with other European factions. The events of Adam's life beginning with the landing at Kyushu and ending at the Battle of Sekigahara were later dramatized in James Clavell's novel Shogun. As a novel, Shogun is fairly well known and is a popular read among Western lovers of Japanese history like myself. It's been many years since I read the book, but from what I remember, it is very entertaining but much more highly dramatized than the real-life events it claims to depict. It also does the godfather thing, where the author swaps out the actual names for his own different versions, a decision I confess I don't understand at all. Still, it shouldn't be hard for listeners of this podcast to figure out who's who. Shogun was a best-selling novel when it was originally released in 1975, and it remains quite popular. If you live in the United States, you can probably find a copy at your local library. By 1603, with Edo and its surrounding areas sufficiently fortified, Ieyasu left the area in the care of his son Tada, his eldest living son. Although he had disappointed his father and did not show up in time to participate in the Battle of Sekigahara, Ieyasu seems to have forgiven his son, who at this point was his heir apparent. Ieyasu traveled to Kyoto, where he was granted a new title by Emperor Go-Yozei, Sei Tai Shogun. The office which was diminished by Nobunaga and practically destroyed by Hideyoshi was primed for a comeback. Upon his elevation, he formed a new bakufu from his trusted advisors while also recruiting those who had stood by his side at Sekigahara and giving them their own share of governance. While we now know that Ieyasu was not only creating an organization still intended to support young Hideyori as he grew into manhood, but was founding a dynasty that would rule Japan for two and a half centuries, this was not openly evident at the time. Hideyoshi's preferred method for cementing his power had been to use the imperial regency, rather than the shogunate, which he probably saw as being weak and ineffective since the shogunate of his lifetime was both of those things. In 1603, it had been 30 years since the previous shogun Ashikaga Yoshiaki had been driven from Kyoto by Nobunaga's approach, and the defunct shogun himself had died in 1597. While both Nobunaga's and Hideyoshi's governments had been outwardly innovative, we have already discussed how they were both fundamentally conservative and reactionary. With Ieyas creating a new bakufu and being named as the new shogun, it may have felt to some that older, more stabler methods of governance were returning now that the land was finally at peace. Danger was still on the horizon, however. The western daimyo whose domains had been punitively diminished or confiscated outright were still bitter about their loss at Sekigahara and eager for a chance to revenge themselves upon the usurper from Kantō. Ieyas, for his part, still claimed to be acting in the best interest of Toyotomi Hideyori, and that this seeming seizure of power was all meant to support his eventual ascendancy to the regency and to a place of absolute authority throughout the nation like his father before him. 1603 is the year which I consider the beginning of the Edo period and the final end of the Azuchi Momoyama period. Some mark the end of Azuchi Momoyama with Sekigahara, but I think the foundation of the new shogunate makes more sense. This new government would have a long memory, as would the descendants of those who were made into outsiders by Ieyasu after Sekigahara. The ensuing years of his primacy would need a delicate touch to ensure that the entire nation did not erupt once more in civil regional wars, which would undo all the work of unification. As for the poem I previously mentioned, now is the time when we hear the final verse. Nobunaga pounded the rice. Hideyoshi kneaded the dough. But it was Ieyasu who ate the rice cake. This is the final regular episode of this season. Thank you all once again for joining me. Next time, we will explore the life and times of a Daimyo whose battlefield prowess and personal ferocity earned him the nickname, the One-Eyed Dragon of Oshu.